You are listening to The Dan Patrick Show on Fox Sports Radio. Come on. Hour two on this Meet Friday. Dan and the Danettes, Dan Patrick Show. Not sure what we learned from the first hour. Talked a lot about Vince Carter. Talked about TikTok videos. Todd, of course, leading the charge. TikTok videos. He's now being called Tick Todd. <laughs> Tick Todd is what Chat Rose label you. Right. Yeah. So you and uh, my youngest daughter, you have uh, the you know same kind of entertainment uh, expectations with TikTok. You know, about 15 seconds, and then that's it. That's it. Yeah, that's all you need. A good cat video, and you are set for the rest of the day. All right, 877-3DP-SHOW. Email address, dp at danpatrick.com. Twitter handle at show. Uh, let me see. Poll question, McLovin. What do we have? Uh, hard-hitting, as usual. Whose career would you rather have, Vince Carter or Scotty Pippen? The early leader is Scotty at 65%. I would take Scotty Pippen. You, you can't argue with the titles. Um, you know, different players, though. But, but Vince went to two Final Fours at North Carolina. And it, you go in to the Basketball Hall of Fame. It's not the NBA Hall of Fame. It's the Basketball Hall of Fame. I don't know why this was a, you know, a, any kind of deal yesterday. I don't know if it's a big deal, but some talk shows were talking about, is Vince Carter a Hall of Famer? I'm like, uh, he's in the top 20 in NBA history in games played, minutes played, three-point field goals made, and total points. Yes, Paul. I'm changing the poll question. Okay. Whose career would you rather have, Vince Carter or Allen Iverson? Neither have a title. At one point, they were the biggest thing in the sport. Maybe all sports. Iverson went to a final. Yep. This is a tough one. Man, Iverson culturally changed the NBA. He didn't do a whole lot with Georgetown. Vince Carter did a whole lot pretty close with uh, UNC. Oh, Iverson was only there one year at Georgetown? I, I think two. Two years? Oh, man. I, man. I'm going to say Iverson. I, I think he was as much a one-man show as anybody we've seen in the NBA. And to do it at that size, he led the league in scoring four times. And he's six feet tall at best. I'd say Iverson. I'd say Iverson. Yeah, McLovin. So in Philly, there's a big, their local radio station had a big poll, greatest Philadelphia sports athlete of all time. And Iverson beat out Mike Schmidt, and it's causing like a huge rebellion. That's a little over it. So Iverson, you're right. You hit on something. Iverson's popularity is unquestioned. With with a whole generation and a whole generation of players, the, the generation that came after Iverson, you know, because he had cornrows, he had tats, he had sleeves, he had swag. I mean, he had, he was different. He was, he was different, man. He had the great... Practice. <laughs> it's like, um, you know, a Jim Mora, when he did playoffs, you know, Iverson did practice. <laughs> it was kind of the same, same feeling there. Playoffs? Practice? 
I, yeah, I would say Iverson. Uh, all right. Phone calls are welcome. 877-3DP-SHOW. Email address dp at danpatrick.com. Spent a little bit of time talking about the decision. And uh, so we're coming up on the anniversary of the decision. Is that right, Tom? July 8th would be the exactly July 8th. 10 years. Okay. And Don Van Natta of The Mothership, they're doing a 30 for 30, and it's based off of what happened behind the scenes of LeBron's decision. We know where he went. Uh, I want to know who knew where he was going before that announcement there. And all I know is people at the mothership, some of my former bosses are on record talking about this. LeBron didn't cooperate with the 30 for 30. Uh, Jim Gray is not in the 30 for 30. But we'll talk to Don Van Natta about the decision. And, And I looked at it differently. I look at it differently now. And that is that LeBron... How many athletes are able to say, I want my own show to make my decision? This wasn't one of those quick announcements where you put on a cap and I'm taking my talents to, he had an, I mean, he had the power and I'm trying to think of an athlete who has had that much power to be able to say to a network, they wanted it on ABC. (laughs) He's like, I don't want to be on ESPN. I'm with this on ABC. And the amazing part is LeBron was 25 years of age when he did that. He didn't have a title. He had, you know, pretty good resume up to that point. But he's 25 years of age and he says to ESPN, I'm going to do, I want to make my decision. I want it to be a TV show. And then he did it again with Sports Illustrated, if you'll remember, when he was, you know, going back to Cleveland. So the summer of 2014, Sports Illustrated had the exclusive that he was going to go back to Cleveland. Yes, John. And I think from what I read, ESPN wanted Bob Lee or Stuart Scott. They wanted one of those guys to Booyah! be the role of Jim Gray. But uh, LeBron's team, I guess, had some relationship with him. And they, I guess, insisted Jim be the one doing the interview. Yeah, I think Jim was friends with Maverick Carter. And, uh, and uh, you know what? In fairness to Jim... He might have come up with the idea. He might have. Because we had Jim on after that. Can we check our notes on that? Yeah. Because I, I want to give Jim credit. He's certainly been criticized because of this. I, I don't think it was Jim's idea to stretch this out as long as possible. I mean, I had a problem that, you know, okay, now I got to wait. And then I got to wait. And then here's another feature. And here's another feature. I, I know that you don't want to start a TV show and go, and I'm taking my talents to South Beach, and then it's over. But I I was hoping that it would have been a half-hour show. Yes, Todd? Yeah, from what I'm looking at, it says it was the idea of Jim Gray or approached LeBron's yeah. agent, Maverick Carter, during yeah. the NBA Finals with the idea. Okay. Yeah, that's. I remember talking to Jim about that, and uh, that they love the idea, and that's why Jim was hosting it. But I do think that some of the my former bosses at the mothership had a problem that it took that long to get to LeBron's decision. And I'm thinking, well, what else were you going to fill the hour with if you didn't drag this out a little bit? It just became to the point where you're going, okay, where are you going? Like you're excited because we didn't know. Oh, he's, he's, he's doing this in Greenwich, Connecticut. He's going to the Knicks. And we're not, no, no, not going to the Knicks. You're not going to win anything there. And uh, 
So Don Venata is doing the 30 for 30, and uh, we'll, we'll talk to him about what are – did Dwayne Wade not know that LeBron was going to Miami? Because there is no way in the world I'll believe that. It's your, that's your buddy. Like, they're friends. I, I don't think you show it up at somebody's house and say, I'm going to stay for three years. Hey, I'm really good friends. Hey, I, I'm just going to knock on Paulie's door on Saturday, and I'm going to say, hey, I'm moving in for three years. Oh, boy. Yeah. I'm taking my talents to Fairfield. <laughs> uh, We'd love to have you. Yeah, I know you would. I know you would. Uh, Jay in Arizona. Hi, Jay. What do you have for me today? Hey, gentlemen, 5'11", 165, first-time caller. Appreciate you taking me. I uh, just wanted to call in and make an argument for Vince Carter being inducted into the Hall of Fame. Mm. I heard you talking about how um, Alan Iverson made a cultural impact on the NBA, and I also felt like Vince Carter did, too. I was debating this in my head last night, and I don't feel like I ever saw anybody dunk the basketball like Vince Carter did. I feel like he changed the excitement level of, of the NBA in that regard. Well... I, there have been a lot of great dunkers, and you're probably not old enough, Jay, to remember uh, Dominique Wilkins. Um, Sean Kemp was a great dunker. Uh, I mean, he had a lot of great dunkers. Vince jumped over a seven-footer, Frederick Weiss. And I think whenever you watched Vince, you always thought he could have done more because he had all this talent. You know, Iverson was usually the smallest guy on the floor. But Vince was spectacular. He's been a great ambassador for the game. He went to two Final Fours when he was at North Carolina. If you want to say the you know negative, you know he didn't win, but he he made himself into one of the better three point shooters in history. So, arguably the greatest leaper in NBA history was also one of the great three point shooters of all time. And this might be one of those where you just accumulate stats. And but there's part of that is, you know, being able to play for that amount of time. I mean, he played till he's 43. And he and he played. It's not like he embarrassed himself. So I'm I'm I have no problem with Vince Carter going in the Hall of Fame. Yeah, Paul. I always get a little defensive about Dominique Wilkins. People don't give him his due. Mm. I know he was a scorer and a dunker and he's more known for his dunking. But he averaged 30 at age 26 and he averaged 30 at age 33. Yeah. He had a longer window of greatness than Vince Carter did and a lot of other guys did. I mean, he, he averaged, led the league in scoring a couple times, averaged 33 times, four times. He was a violent dunker. Yeah. Violent. But, you know, the, he couldn't get past the Celtics. Yeah, McLovin. I got a big debate yesterday. Is Vince Carter dunking over Frederick Feist the best dunk of all time? And I said it was Dr. J cradling on Michael Cooper. <sighs> And then other people brought up uh, Jordan going baseline on Ewing. And there were a few that were out there on social media yesterday. That was all over the place. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's hard to remember every dunk, but. Tom Chambers dunking on Mark Jackson is pretty good. That's (laughs) me. Why are you doing that to your buddy? (laughs) Mark's not up this early. (laughs) I can do it. I'll hear about it later. Here you're talking about me. No, no, not really. Just your chest where Tom Chambers put his foot on your chest. Yeah, Paulie. I think my two favorites, and even though I'm a Bulls fan, I thought John Stark's baseline dunk left against hand. most of the Bulls team left-handed in the playoffs for the Knicks, that, that place went insane. That was spicy. And he's 6'3", tops. That's spicy. And there's Jordan's there, and Pippen's there, and Horace is there. There was also one, and I don't remember the year or anything, Kevin Johnson, the Suns. He dunked over, like, I think he dunked over Akeem. Elijah Wan once. 
He also dunked over Mark Eaton once. And Kevin Johnson's, again, not even 6'4". Oh, he's, KJ's probably 6'1". Underrated dunker. Yeah. Greatest dunk of all time. Yeah, see. The John Starks dunk. Not, I'm not going not to be a... <laughs> but, but you are. I am going to be. Oh, are you poo-pooing? Uh, well, I'm not poo-pooing, but it's slightly overrated. As playoff dunk, right? It is a playoff dunk. Uh, it does put them up by five. It is against the Bulls. But he had like a wide open free lane to the hoop and got there. There was there was actually while somehow he dunked over the entire team while no one was playing defense on him. By the time he got to the rim, I get there's a lot of hands there, but everything leading up to it, there was nothing. I, I see what Seton's saying because he's not over anybody. He's alone in the corner. He's amongst. Yeah, and then he goes in. That's, and everybody, the defense sort of comes crashing from the other side, but they're too late. Okay. All right. Uh, yes, did Is this the same game where he got cold, the two for 18? No, 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 no. no. It's a totally That's NBA game. Finals. So in my mind, I always get the two. I'm like, that duck was great, but then he's a guy who went two for 18. That in the was against quarter. Houston. That hurt. Oh, and he kept shooting. And I know, as a shooter, you're told to keep shooting. <laughs> There's a time when you go, I got to stop shooting. I think I, I've shot enough here. Um, Royal in Iowa. Hey, Royal, what do you have for me today? Hey, Dan, long-time listener, uh, first-time caller. You guys were talking about a comparison between uh, Iverson and Vince. And great comparison. I agree with you on Iverson on that. I, I really didn't even have to second-guess it. But I think the better comparison is Iverson and Tiny Archibald, which I know you'll you'll remember Tiny because we're about the same age. Yeah. And uh, I, I'll take Tiny. I think he was, uh, for his, uh, his stretch there, he was as dangerous as anybody. And uh, pretty close size to Allen Iverson. I know Tiny didn't get any titles either, neither did Iverson. But I'm going with uh, Tiny. I'll hang up and listen. All right, Thank you, Royal. Uh, Nate Archibald, one of the more underrated players in NBA history. And I got to see him, uh, I probably saw seven to ten games each year. So two years I saw Nate Archibald play. And he, you couldn't shut him down. He didn't back down from anybody. He went left every single time. He might have been 5'11". Because I stood next to him. Because we waited till they came out of the locker room to get autographs back then. And he... You saw him and you went, how is that guy doing it? And he was spectacular. And you go back to, he led the league in scoring and assist in the same season for a team that I think might have been a last place team. But he was a wonderful talent. But he, you know, he played for the Royals. He eventually got to the Celtics, but he was nowhere near. It's like Maravich got to the Celtics as well. They were nowhere near what they once were. Uh, when Dr. J got to the Sixers, Dr. J was still a force to be reckoned with. But, you know, the, with uh, Maravich and uh, Tiny, they, they were not great players when they ended up with uh, Boston Celtics. So I would take Iverson because uh, Iverson did it on a big stage. And, um, you know, there, there were a lot, lot of other things that went along with that, with, uh, with Iverson. Because the NBA instituted the uh, dress code because Iverson and Steve Nash. Remember Iverson would wear like a hockey jersey 
And Nash would wear T-shirts and jeans. And I, I remember talking to Nash about that. I said, you know, Iverson gets all the blame. He goes, I know, thank God. Because Nash would show up as if he was, you know, going to a rager. Like he flip-flops and, you know, he, he didn't care. And uh, the NBA instituted the uh, dress code and people thought, oh, you know, hey, the commissioner's singling out Allen Iverson here. And in reality, and even the commissioner told me, Commissioner Stern said, uh, Steve Nash is the one that he made him think about how we're going to dress, how we want our players to show up at a press conference. And I remember saying at the time, why not show up and be able to show off like designers and wear a suit? You know, does Nike come up with their own suits or Adidas get sponsors? And then years later, these guys show up as if they're going to uh, Milan. They're going to walk the cat catwalk. D I mean, look at Russell Westbrook Jr. The third. He gives more time, more thought to what he's going to wear than improving his jumper. What? What did you just say? Yes, McLevin. They, did you see yesterday they announced a change that you don't have to wear a suit on the uh, sideline at, at the bubble? It was a big deal. You can wear an NBA polo. instead. I guess there's a rule you have to wear a jacket on the bench. I didn't know that at all. Coaches do? Players. If you're injured, you have to Wait, wear a jacket. What? Yeah, that's. I'm reading Shams. Uh, they loosened... The dress code. Uh, so among the changes are players not being required to wear a sport coat on the bench, players being able to wear polo shirts for official business, and coaches wearing NBA polo shirts. Okay. So, and Shams is saying it's like going to be summer league. Look. Yeah. I was just going to say that's what it feels like. Yeah, Todd. But they do want them all to wear Mickey Mouse ears, which I think is a little oh, ridiculous. Oh, okay. You know, don't I, make, see. That's I see what you're doing. Don't make them wear. Let me take a break here. We'll get to more phone calls. The uh, decision. Don Vennetta of The Mothership will join us. What are some of the questions that were left unanswered? I'm looking at this quote. I'll save it. It has to do with Dwayne Wade not knowing about what LeBron was going to do with the decision. And the fact that why was it held in Greenwich, Connecticut? Um, 20 after the hour. And who knew they had a boys and girls club of Greenwich, Connecticut? That must be a really nice boys and girls club. Next to a vineyard vines. <laughs> right next door. We'll take a break. Uh, we're, let's see. 20 after the hour. This is the Dan Patrick Show. Thanks for listening to the Dan Patrick Show podcast. Be sure to catch us live every weekday morning, 9 to noon Eastern or 6 to 9 Pacific on Fox Sports Radio. Find your local station for the Dan Patrick Show at foxsportsradio.com or stream us live every day on the iHeartRadio app by searching FSR. You're going to love our Discover Moment of the Week. I'll have that for you in about 20 minutes from now. More phone calls coming up. I got everybody giving their opinions on the best dunk of all time. We brought up Frederick Weiss with his dunk. Uh, Vince Carter dunking over Frederick Weiss. That, that was in the Olympics, so I think it got even more coverage because of that worldwide. But, man, look, you can go down the list in NBA history of great dunks of all time. You know, Daryl Dawkins brought down the backboard with the dunk. I don't know if that's on the list for people. Uh, Don Van Natta, the ESPN investigative reporter, host of Backstory. And uh, he is looking at the backstory of the decision. Airs Sunday night at 9 Eastern on ESPN. And uh, Don joins us now. 
Don, thanks for joining us. Let me ask you what is was more overcovered, Deflate Gate or the decision? Because you were involved in Deflate Gate as well. Uh, that's a hard question to start with, Dan. I think they're probably on an equal footing. They certainly uh, enraged different parts of the country in equal measure, right? New England was furious about my coverage of Deflategate and the decision uh, people in uh, Cleveland will never forget it, despite LeBron coming back and winning a championship. But a good, a good question. Both, you, both upset fan bases more than, uh, more than anything. Do you know everything about Deflategate that you want to know? Oh, no, there's always questions. As an investigative reporter, Dan, Dan, there's always new questions. There's always new information you can find out. I mean, we drew a through line, as you may remember, to Spygate. So much of what happened with Tom Brady in that four-game suspension traces back to Spygate and the fact that Roger Goodell slapped the Patriots on the wrist uh, in that scandal. And owners wanted uh, this time with the Flategate uh, for there to be uh, an oversized punishment. And that's really what that was all about. So if we didn't have Spygate, Tom Brady doesn't get suspended four games? I don't think so. No, I don't. I, I mean, come on. It's just, it was such a silly scandal, those deflated footballs. But there were owners around, the most powerful owners in particular, like Jerry Jones, that really wanted the Patriots to pay. And Roger Goodell listens to the people like Rooney, Goodell, Hunt, those guys really wanted the Patriots to, to pay for Deflategate and Tom Brady, and that's what happened. If I gave you one question with a truthful answer coming from Tom Brady, <laughs> what, what would you ask? What would I ask Tom Brady? I would ask Tom Brady, uh, how many games does he think he won based on Spygate? The Spygate scandal was far greater than we ever knew. Remember, uh, Jeff Pash, the general counsel of the NFL, was provided by the Patriots only three or four Spygate tapes. That's all the Patriots said there was. And when he was given them in Foxborough, Jeff Pash crunched them under his wingtips and got rid of the evidence. Uh, In our story that I did back with Seth Seth Wickersham that you're referring to, there was at least 40 games that the Patriots used spying techniques. So I would ask Tom Brady, how many games did you win? Did you win a Super Bowl based on information given to you through spying on opposing team signals? I remember the last time the commissioner was on this show. That might have been how many years ago, Pauline? Like seven? Seven or eight. Seven or eight. And I said, why would you destroy tapes? Spike, he goes, well, there's no reason for them. And I, I'm thinking, <laughs> okay. Like it was such a strange answer that he was like, yeah, of course we destroy it. I, I don't know. Don't they have a storage bin where they keep all the things that, uh, you know, or NFL films would want something like this? Absolutely. And remember, the NFL took the word of the Patriots that this was the only evidence of this scandal. There was really no real investigation that was ever conducted of Spygate. It was wrapped up within a week. They just wanted it to go away. And this was only the first year of Roger Goodell's commissionership. And Bob Kraft, the owner of the Patriots, helped Goodell get his job. The whole thing stunk. All right. The reason why we're having you on is uh, backstory of the decision that airs this Sunday night at nine Eastern. I'm looking at a quote here with uh, Dwayne Wade, Dwayne Wade telling Rachel Nichols of ESPN, LeBron kind of went into his cave, went radio silent, kind of had to deal with his own process. But we were a little nervous on the other side. Like, wait, are we still in this? Did Dwayne Wade know that LeBron was coming to Miami? Sounds like a cover story, doesn't it? What Dwayne told Rachel Nichols. Uh, 
these guys had talked about playing together way back in 2006 when Dwayne Wade, Chris Bosh, and LeBron James were teammates on the World Championships team, and again in 2008 when they were teammates on the Olympics team. They could have signed five-year max deals. Instead, all three of them signed three-year rookie extensions, which made them eligible free agent for free agency in 2010. We looked into it, Dan. I can't prove unequivocally that uh, that night when Dwayne Wade was tuning in, he really didn't know what LeBron was going to do. But the day before the decision, remember, Chris Bosh said, I'm going to play for the Miami Heat with Dwayne Wade. And a lot of insiders were like, all right, that's all the proof we need that uh, tomorrow night on the decision, LeBron James is going to say, I'm going to Miami. All right, what's the one thing that'll stand out more than anything else that you found out, the, the backstory of the decision? Well, you know, there's a lot of new information on our show, Dan, but one of the things that I so love about what we found out is the origin story. You know, Jim Gray was the host, as you may remember, the veteran broadcaster. He had said it was his idea that he raised it with Ari Emanuel, the Hollywood agent, and Maverick Carter in June of 2010 during the NBA Finals, Game 2 at halftime in L.A. It turns out, actually, the idea was from a guy named Drew in Columbus, Ohio, in November 2009. He wrote a letter to Bill Simmons's mailbag column at ESPN.com and said, what if LeBron had announced, would announce his decision, his free agency decision, live on ABC? Bill Simmons responded in that column and said, great idea. LeBron should put it on pay-per-view. And then Bill Simmons took the idea, pitched it in February at the All-Star Weekend in Dallas to Maverick Carter, LeBron's business partner, Leon Rose, LeBron's agent, Worldwide West, LeBron's advisor at the time. He also, Simmons also pitched it to ESPN executives. And for months, Simmons was trying to basically get this show done. And then sort of in a moment of serendipity, I guess, Maverick Carter, Ari Emanuel, and Jim Gray are at the All-Star Game, are at, are at the NBA Finals, I should say, and come up with this idea. So what, what really happened there and whose idea it was is really fascinating. But the other part of it, Dan, is just a revolution was going on that night. We saw a bad hour of TV, an awkward hour of TV. This was LeBron and Maverick Carter becoming producers, taking control of their own storytelling uh, in a remarkable way, really, because you look at it now, 10 years later, the through line that you draw and uninterrupted uh, Spring Hill Entertainment just this week, just yesterday, Bloomberg reported $100 million is being raised for storytelling by black artists through LeBron and Maverick's media company. And this was them. Look, it was a it was probably a good idea, really badly executed. Uh, they made a lot of mistakes that night. It was some bad TV, but they were spreading their wings and trying this out. And now uh, you know, arguably LeBron is uh, the most influential and outspoken athlete in the country and, and what he's doing with his storytelling through these various shows that he does and as an executive producer is really remarkable. Who decided how long they were going to wait before LeBron made the decision? <laughs> well, LeBron and Maverick Carter were the producers uh, of the show, though I interviewed John Skipper. Uh, the former president of ESPN who greenlit the show and Vince Doria, the head of the news division of ESPN. Uh, you know, they say the only way to hold an audience is to, you know, kill some time. It's a one hour show. It wasn't until 928 Eastern that Jim Gray finally got around to asking what's your decision. That's after 23 questions, by the way, Dan, including, are you a nail biter? And did you bring the powder? Uh, so there was a lot of time killing going on. I think ESPN partly had uh, some motive there, but a lot of this was Maverick Carter and Jim Gray. They were really in control. The cameras got turned on 
They belong to ESPN and the satellite uplink belonged to ESPN. But it was really Maverick Carter and Jim Gray calling the shots that night. But did you talk to John Skipper and Vince Dory about their role of because Jim Gray wasn't working for ESPN, but so this That's is right. ESPN executives. Did they have any control over when Jim Gray was going to ask LeBron what's his decision? Well, it's, it's interesting. They had some, uh, they say. They certainly understood what was going on. But no, really, they say this was a Maverick Carter production. Uh, remember, ESPN was ba- don't, basically donated that hour, gave Maverick Carter and LeBron James that hour for free. So an hour of free television on ESPN was traded for an exclusive. And so, you know, an old school journalist like me at the time, I was at the New York Times. I thought there's something wrong there. Uh, You know, I don't like the way this looks. And uh, but both Doria and Skipper, if you watch the show on Sunday night, they sort of justify it. They understand it from a TV perspective uh, why LeBron and Maverick and Jim Gray did what they did. How do they keep it quiet? Like how many people knew that where LeBron was going? Well, very few uh, knew about it. And uh, and that was another interesting thing, right? You had these ESPN insiders like Chris Broussard tasked with trying to find out where LeBron was going. And if they did find out, they'd scoop their own network. And I asked Skipper about that and Dory about that as well. Uh, a very small circle of people knew. LeBron said that night in the chair that he didn't make the decision until that morning after he spoke with his mother. Uh, and he said that the number of people that knew the decision as he sat in the chair was you could count it on one hand. Now, again, whether D. Wade and Chris Bosh and others, Pat Riley, the people at, in, in Miami knew more than that. They probably did, I would guess. Uh, and we and we delve into that a little bit. But uh, uh, how they kept it secret, it is it is pretty remarkable when you consider in this day and age how nothing that is ever known by anybody stays a secret for very long. Did Jim Gray know? I don't think Jim Gray knew. I really don't. You know, there was very little preparation. One of the things we found out is LeBron was at his basketball camp that week in Akron. Uh, He didn't arrive in Greenwich until about six o'clock that night, just a few hours before the decision broadcast. People around LeBron told me he had no idea there were going to be so many questions. I mean, you see him in the chair. It's so awkward, but he also looks so uncomfortable, almost as if in the moment he's thinking, this is this is a bad idea. The other thing, Dan, we found out is that Leon Rose, LeBron's agent at the time and World Wide West, both warned people around LeBron in his inner circle that this had the potential to backfire. They knew that he was not going to stay in Cleveland, and they knew if you announce I'm leaving my hometown on national television with 10 million people watching, there was a lot of potential for an enormous backlash and undercutting your brand. Why Greenwich, Connecticut for the announcement? Okay, that that's a very good question that I am almost certain this is the right answer. Keith Klinkscales, an executive at ESPN at the time, and the liaison between the LeBron camp and the network, I believe, picked Greenwich for its proximity to Bristol. Of course, I'm a long-suffering Knicks fan, so when I heard Greenwich, Connecticut, like a lot of Knicks fans, I thought, okay, you know, it's, it was like the mother of all head fakes, right? I mean, he's coming to New York, yes. Uh, but, uh, but I think it really was that. But, you know, the whole look of it, I heard you guys talking about it before the break. I mean, Greenwich, Connecticut, the criticism was even to the kids in the background. Critics said they were used as props. Uh, you know, the Greenwich, the Greenwich, Connecticut Boys and Girls Club, you know, looks like a country club compared to a lot of the boys and girls clubs around the country. So even the backdrop just just didn't work. Nothing worked that night. What's the next story you want to dive into? 
So we have already begun. Uh, we've done a lot of interviews, and we're really excited about our next backstory. It's the Manti Teo uh, catfishing scandal. And we're delving into that. We hope to have that done later this year. Uh, there's a lot of unanswered questions there. How much did Manti Teo know? What did he know and when did he know it, I guess, is what I'm trying to find out. Uh, I think viewers are going to be really surprised and uh, will enjoy that. Did he cooperate? No, he hasn't yet. Hasn't yet. Still trying. Uh, but he knows we're on the hunt. Did you interview his girlfriend? You mean his fake dead girlfriend? Yes. No. <laughs> That'd be a great get, the fake dead yeah, girlfriend. Sure we're trying. We're, we're speaking to her people, Dan. We're trying. You're an investigative reporter. I love That's it. That's right. Uh, Don, thank you. We'll look forward to that on Sunday night. Thank you, Dan. It's great to be with you. Don Van Natta, ESPN investigative reporter and host of Backstory that comes out uh, this Sunday night at 9 Eastern, The Decision. We'll take a break. Phone calls coming up. And uh, the Discover moment of the week, which was really funny with Darius Rucker. That's right after this. Thanks for listening to the Dan Patrick Show podcast. Be sure to catch us live every weekday morning, 9 until noon Eastern, 6 to 9 Pacific on Fox Sports Radio. And you can find us on the iHeartRadio app at FSR or stream us live every day at YouTube.com slash The Dan Patrick Show. Time for the Discover moment of the week. Go back to Tuesday's show. Popular singer Darius Rucker telling us why his wife was okay with naming their daughter after Dan Marino. If it's honest, then it's, she was okay with it because uh, my daughter was conceived at uh, at uh, Dan Marino at uh, Don Shula's, I think, retirement or Dan at Dan's retirement, and, uh, <laughs> and in our hotel room there was a, a life size picture of Dan over my over our bed. <laughs> So she thinks Dan's the reason that the so Danny came. You you got in the mood because you were looking at oh look at number thirteen. It's so hot. That's one of the creepiest things you've ever told me. That's our Discover Card moment of the week. Get your free credit scorecard today, even if you're not a customer. It includes your FICO credit score. Checking your scorecard won't hurt your credit. Learn more at discover.com slash credit scorecard. Limitations do apply. Uh, Don Van Natta of the Mothership was talking about the next story, backstory they're going to dive into, the Manti Teo story. That story was so big at the time. I mean, out of nowhere. It And I remember seeing, um, and this is back in January of 2013. So this is a guy who's up for the Heisman. I think he finished top three in Heisman voting that year. He's bringing Notre Dame back. Good looking guy out of Hawaii wearing number five. And I remember seeing Deadspin, Manti Teo's dead girlfriend, the most heartbreaking and inspirational story of the college football season, is a hoax. And you, you're going, wait a minute, what, what happened here? I mean, he played the season. I, I think he lost his grandmother. That, that really happened. But he's, he's this Mormon linebacker he's at a catholic school notre dame and he learned that his grandmother had died and then his girlfriend a couple days later died lene kakua 22 years of age she was in a serious car accident in california and then diagnosed with leukemia 
Sports Illustrated's Pete Thamel described how Tao would put the phone, her phone, in the hospital room, and he would stay on the line with her as he slept. So there was a phone in her room in the hospital bed, and he would just listen throughout the night. Her relatives told him that at her lowest points, she fought to emerge from a coma. Her breathing rate would increase at the sound of his voice. <sighs> when did Manti Teo, uh, you know, college game day, Man, Manti Teo was on college game day to talk about the letters she had written him during her illness he would send a heartfelt letter to the parents of a sick child discussing his experience with the disease and the grief. The South Bend Tribune wrote an article describing the young couple's fairy tale meeting. She, a Stanford student, he, a Notre Dame star, and uh, they met, this is after a football game outside Palo Alto. Manti Teo did lose his grandmother. He did not lose his girlfriend as we uh, came to find out. Yeah, this is one of those where you read it and you go, I got to read it again. And then you just go, I'm shocked here. I'm absolutely shocked. The Manti Teo story moved beyond the world of sports on the day of the BCS title game because... It was Notre Dame and Alabama. CBS This Morning ran a three-minute story that featured a direct quote from Lene Kakua. Babe, if anything happens to me, you promise that you'll stay there and you'll play and you'll honor me through the way you play. Yeah, Paul. And this happened, uh, the, the death of the girlfriend, which turned out to be true, happened in early September. Uh, the South Bend Tribune did a piece on it. It appeared, uh, Manti Teo then, right after that, became a big story because there's more to his story, uh, the bad side of it. Sports Illustrated put him on the cover on October 1st, which jump-started his Heisman campaign. And then there's a numerous reports where he, he talks about his girlfriend and the issues. and like It's not someone else but him talking about it for months before it came out in January. But... They, so, so then they did the movie Catfish. Was Catfish already out? It was a TV show on um, MTV, I think. Yeah. But well, they did a documentary. There was a documentary about it that then became a, a TV, TV show. show. Yeah. yeah. In different games during the season, the broadcast of Notre Dame games had a picture and a quotes about uh, Manti Teo's dead girlfriend. There was a CBS game that Notre Dame played, and they're recapping Teo, and they said his grandmother died, and they have a picture of a woman who, who knows who that picture is of. And quotes of Manti Teo talking about his dead girlfriend. They and, said that the hoax began crumbling around November of 2012. Supposedly, his girlfriend's sister popped up on Twitter under the name Yulani Ray Kakua. And Manti Teo immediately tweeted out the following... Uh, one of the realest people I know. Shout out to her. She's new to Twitter. Yeah, see. So the woman who, like Paul was just talking about, the picture that they were showing on TV, yeah. that woman became aware of the sort of her identity hasn't been released because they're trying to protect her from all this stuff. But like she saw that picture was like, oh my God, that's me. That's a picture of me from Facebook that they're using as this the face of this dead girl. Can you imagine? <laughs> 
Oh, man. And Notre Dame found out about this in late December before the national title game, and everyone sat on it. They basically hold, held their breath, and then Deadspin got the tip and went to work. <laughs> Jesus. Yeah. That's the craziest story, it, dude. It, I'm rereading the story right now, and it's just as surreal as that day. Go back and read it again if you have it. I, it's such a long story, and it's so detailed on Deadspin. And you're just going, how, how did this happen? We, we had on the author of the story, Tim Burke, on the next morning. And he even said, he goes, I, I couldn't believe it when I got the tip. He said, well, I'm, I'm being baited into looking into a story that can't be true. And then they looked up social security numbers and names, and, and they started there. Any court records for this person? And it all went south. He didn't win the Heisman. No, he was a Heisman finalist. But he, yeah. I have a picture of him holding up the Heisman. And I'm wondering what this did to his, uh, his Heisman campaign. Because, I mean, that was such a huge story. What was bigger? That feel-good, crazy Hollywood story, and you're doing this for your girlfriend who's dying? And, or was it the fact that it was all fake? He lost the Heisman to Johnny Manziel. <laughs> Whose career would you rather have? Well, Manti Teo's still playing, right? Yeah, but... I'd rather have Johnny Manziel's. <laughs> I would. I mean, Johnny's got baggage, but there's no fake dead girlfriend in there. No. Not that we know of. Oh, man. And then I remember watching that documentary, Catfish, and, you know, then all of a sudden they started to do a show. Did Manti Teo reach out to the cat? Did... I thought he had communication with the people from Catfish, whether it's the documentary I don't know if you see that or not, but uh, in the story, Paulie, but I, I thought that he reached out to them, but he deleted a tweet to them. Checking on that. We, I remember the show we did the day after the story came out, and we discussed what it would take for people to forget about this. And we said, you know, if Manti Teo has a, you know, eight-time All-Pro Hall of Fame career, it, it's a footnote. It's a, a funny footnote. He has never made a Pro Bowl. Who's he play for? New Orleans. Okay. I think, he's, I I think he's done, though. I Backup linebacker. Oh, he's out. He, I'm not sure he's still with them. We should check. He hasn't had a great career. Wants to spend more time with his dead girlfriend. That's not necessary. That's, that's, that's not, that's not necessary. Oh, All right, my bad. Better better than that. I didn't know the mic was on. I thought, I thought we were off the air. Bob Euchre coming up. Dan Patrick Show. <laughs>